But I want to stay at the beach, Daddy. I'm having fun. I know, but it's time to pay for our vacation now and go home and go back to work. Oh, no. Because that's life. I don't want to. What is financial sobriety? Well, first, I'm Jim Gebhardt. Oh, I'm Matthew Grishman. That's good. We should introduce ourselves. And this podcast is all going to be about three relationships that really, when you stop and you think about them, you don't think they go together. But it's your relationship you have with money. It's a relationship you have with people who mean the most to you. And ultimately, the relationship you have with yourself. So I might imagine that those three relationships are somewhat wrapped together. That when one gets a little out of whack, perhaps it has an effect on the others. Stick around and you'll find out. What's on your gratitude list today? That's a good question. What am I grateful for? Well, I'm always grateful, or at least today. I'm not always grateful, but today I'm grateful I woke up. I woke up, my eyes opened up. I woke up sober in every aspect of my life, which was wonderful. And even though my head was spinning a little bit, I woke up grateful for being able to be grateful for the fact that my eyes opened up today. I'm grateful for this beautiful weather we have today, and I'm especially grateful for being here in studio with you today. So that's more than one thing. Yeah, and I probably have a few more things I'm grateful for too, but... We don't want to consume the whole show with yeah. gratitude. <laughs> exactly. Deepak Chopra has that show. Exactly. Ours is a little different. Gotcha. What are you grateful for today? I am grateful for my wife. My wife has been my absolute rock the last month. Well, last almost 30 years, but we have a lot going on in our life. You don't say. A lot. And half of it's good and half of it's not so good. The chaos that comes with all of that, and she's got my back, and she keeps me stable. She keeps me with my feet underneath me, and I'd like to think I do the same for her, and we make one hell of a team. Oh, brother, that's awesome. That is so cool that you have that kind of partnership in your marriage. It, it, it's just, it's remarkable. I mean, obviously, I'm not in another marriage, so I can't really speak <laughs> to what that would be like. But to have the level of partnership, to have the level of support and understanding that, great example, is she stumbled into a masseuse. We've been so blown like, and going. Like bumped into her on the street and kind of stumbled don't and they even fell know. down together? Don't even know how they connected. But Beth is not a masseuse kind of person. She's not a massage spa kind of person. No, that would be way too self-care. And yet one of the things I'm immensely proud of, Beth, is that she is embracing self-care. She's embracing this relationship with self. That's awesome. And the need as we get older and seem to be, whether we're attracting more stress or whatever it is, we have more stress in our life, and so the need for the self-care is, is always higher, is this masseuse, she booked an appointment with yesterday and had a hour-plus appointment and was blown away, and then she immediately was like, and you're scheduling an appointment with her before you go to Syracuse next week. I was like, I am? She's like, yeah, it's mandatory. Wow. That's so, like out of your playbook. Do you want to do it Thursday at 5 or Monday at 5.30? I'm like, uh, uh-huh. Who, who yes. is this person and what did you do with our with our Beth? So that's awesome. That's, a, that's just a, a very microcosmic example yeah. of the support, but she knows that I'm under extraordinary stress and that while I am mindful of my self-care, I don't always follow it in times of stress because it's, you know, I'm running into that burning building to do what I do. So that's my gratitude. That's way cool. An observation that I've had with you and Beth for a lot of years is that it seems like when you two do something new, you do it together. And my funny haha of, you know, who, who is this person? You know, what'd you do with Beth? has more to do with the self-care component than it does the, you know, what, what oh, she's yeah. doing to hold you accountable here. Because you guys have been doing that for a while. But what's really cool is to see how, given the amount you guys are carrying, how full your life has become with, with heavy stuff, the way you're both experiencing simultaneously 
sadness and joy at the same time. Oh, yeah. And and we watching. could have we could have uh, several shows just on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we we've talked about that concept. That's what this whole pandemic world has created for all of us is this opportunity to experience both sadness and joy simultaneously. And to watch the two of you do that and recognize that to be able to do that, to have the bandwidth to do that, requires a certain amount of self-care that to go out and do it alone when you're not used to doing it, when it's not your natural way of doing things in life, to have each other to wade through these unknown waters. I mean, there, there's a trust there. There's a faith there. There's a I'm not sure I can do this, but if you're in it with me. Oh, there's absolutely a solace and a peace of mind and a comfort level that comes from knowing I've got somebody in the foxhole that, you know, isn't going to go running in the opposite direction when things get hard. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Well, well that's you, our show today. Is that, is that a wrap or <laughs> yeah. are we going to? No, we're not going to call a wrap. I got one more idea we need to talk about today. Okay, just one. Okay. Just one. Just uh -huh. one. It's, it's going to be quick, easy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching you and Beth put some self-care together with all that's happening, I think, is a great entree to the conversation that we've been having. Not an appetizer? No, it's an entree. It's, okay. it's, I, I would skip the appetizer because you're going to need room in your belly for this. I mean, that's why I didn't get an appetizer when we went to dinner last Friday because I knew with that fried chicken we were going to order for dinner, there was no way I could also do an appetizer. So you guys all did salads, which was great. And I still had you take home half I, my chicken. I split the salad. You did? Mm-hmm. That didn't look like a split salad. It didn't. Very impressive. So as an entree, we've been talking about this concept of risk. I would imagine all the risk that exists in the world, if I were going to tie your gratitude to a little bit of the conversation today, I would imagine that all the risk that is rearing its ugly head today in the world in all these different areas that touch our lives are part of what's encouraging the two of you to go down this route of self-care. Yes? Sure. I'm not connecting the dots there yet, but sure. There's all this chaos in the world and all this risk in the world, and you and Beth are experiencing some of it directly impacting your family. Yeah, I see where you're going. Right? Yeah. So, so I think continuing the conversation about risk and seeing how it touches different parts of our lives, that's really what we're going to try to do with this episode and maybe even the next couple of episodes and I want to start it by asking you a question. Where do you build a nuclear power plant? That's a good question. Not in my backyard. Exactly. That's the reason I'm interrupting you with this is that's one of the ways that I see risk is people think of it as building a nuclear power plant in their backyard, in their town. No, 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 that's not, that's that. No, we're not going to, we can't do that. We're not going to do that here. We're going to do that someplace else. Like risk is someplace else. Oh, <laughs> Thank you it's for... not here. It's not in my universe. Yeah, I had no idea where you were going with that, but that's good. Yeah, Thanks. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How's your drink? Is it, is it the caffeine? Are you catching up with me? I'm, I'm getting there. The pink drink's going down. Yeah. We're going to talk about risk for a long time. Yeah. Because we have to penetrate through that entire barrier that people have around the fact, well, risk, risk that, that, that doesn't apply to me. Maybe it applies to somebody else. Right. But not me. Right. Well, <laughs> it does. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about. If you were immortal, if you could not. I am mortal. You said if I'm mortal. Immortal. Jim. If you're immortal. Right. If you couldn't die, would you live your life differently? What would you do differently? If I couldn't die. If you couldn't die. If you were going to live forever. Well, I'd have more fried chicken. Okay. What else? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, this is a question, right? If you knew that. You could not die. Oh, come on. What would you do differently? You would be ridiculous with the risk. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you. What would you, Jim Gebhardt, do differently? I would take a lot more risk. Okay, and give me examples. What do you mean? Oh, I would bungee jump. Would you really? Yes. You Okay. I'd jump out of a plane for Grace's 18th birthday, which was a year ago, what I was too afraid to do. So if you couldn't die, your fear of heights would go away. Well, yeah, because I wouldn't die. <laughs> so that's what you're afraid of, jumping out of an airplane or bungee jumping? Yes, and I also feel an extraordinary responsibility as the primary breadwinner in my family that I, I need to stay alive a little longer. Okay. What else would you do? Probably drive faster. Okay. Driving fast is fun. I'd probably buy some cryptocurrency. Ooh. Oh, nice. 
I think I'd go shark diving. Like I'd go in a, I mean, I still want to do that. You've talked about, I'm so sick and tired of listening to you talk about how sick and tired you are about not going shark diving. Will you just do it already? <laughs> but I, you know. Can I, I answer the question or am I allowed to ask you the question next? We Well, we're going to go back and forth on this, right? <laughs> oh. This is how we do it. Now I get the instructions. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it's just, it's thinking about how we would live life differently. I mean. Oh, I would definitely drive faster. Yeah. I love the jumping out of the airplane. That's the first thing I do because now that Miles can take me up in a Cessna, I'd say, just open the door. I'm going to jump. Right. One of my favorite movies is Bill Murray's Groundhog Day. You have, but Ugh. true disclaimer, you have a lot of favorite movies. I got a lot of favorite movies. This is the one I was thinking about recently, knowing what we were going to talk about today, because it almost seems like, like you said, risk doesn't happen to me. And now that that risk is here, if risk... Risk has always been here. I I know, but if we can see it now. It's always been here. What do you mean it's always been here? Oh, risk is always here. You said now that risk is here. Yeah. Now, I mean. It didn't go away. I know it didn't go away, but it felt like it went away. It seems like since 2008, right? Since that whole market crash in 08 and the mortgage mess and the whole meltdown. Was that a problem? Little bit. <laughs> I mean, Listen I to any of our seventy-seven shows, and you might you might hear a, a thread. Yeah, I mean, ever since then, it feels like to me that our government has created this like Groundhog Day effect, where it's almost like they've created investor immortality, where no matter what happens in the world, you really can't get hurt with your money because. We now have this ability to print as much money as we want. We can have a Fed take interest rates all the way down to zero to give us unlimited supplies to debt and lending. And just every storm we've had since 2008 has felt like a little blip. And markets really haven't had the opportunity to do what they normally do under economic stress in this idea of expansion and contraction. You know, speaking of contractions. Yes. Have I ever told you the story about Emily shortly after Emily was born? <laughs> you may have. So Emily Emily was Tell me again. maybe six months old. Okay. And our favorite coffee shop in Lafayette is Pete's Coffee. And I'm in Pete's Coffee. It's summertime. It's springtime. It's like June-ish. So she's like five or six months old. And I've got her in the, the car seat, you know, handle thing, right? I've, I've, I've walked in. I'm a proud new dad, and I'm going to get myself a coffee and... I watch a young lass walk in who's maybe 16, 17, I don't know, and she's dressed, but it's very scantily summertime-ish, you know, Daisy Dukes in the short top. And, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, dear God, I had, I had a daughter that might do that one day. And ah, you're getting a little flash forward. And I'm getting a, I'm getting a flash forward, and I look at the young the young girl that walked in and then you know shortly thereafter her boyfriend walked in who also just it was very unsettling and I felt as though at that moment that God had put a different set of eyes in me because you had a little girl now because I was a father and I had a daughter and I went eventually went on to have sons as well but the point to this diatribe is that I had I had new lenses put in my body Mm-hmm. Not even my glasses, but in my body. Mm-hmm. 08 did that again. Yeah. 08 put a, an entirely new set of lenses in my body around risk. Right. I'm with you. I, around yeah. the acknowledgement that it could be a lovely, sunny summer afternoon on the lake, and we're out sailing and having the time of our life, and then all of a sudden the weather changed and we were in deep shit. Yeah. The point to this story is that's how I feel once again in the sense that we have to honor and respect the fact that risk has never gone away. Right. But holy holy smokes, is it back? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm I get you and I'm picking up what you're putting down. You're right. Risk has not gone away. 2008 changed the way I saw things too. Granted, I wasn't in the trenches like you were. I was a layer removed from working one-on-one with clients. So my view of risk wasn't like right there with yours. And 
if I extrapolate that out to some of the other people who are part of our conversation today, this is kind of what I mean about the Groundhog Day effect. Oh, I, I, I the, love it. The fact that we've created this sense of investor immortality. I mean, you and I talk often about just our experience in, in 2018 and the fourth quarter of 2018, where there was no news, there was nothing going on, and the market completely sold off 20%. Yet earlier that year, there was a litany of disasters that had happened from the Las Vegas shootings and you know just all these geopolitical events that were going on in the world with ISIS and and you know, the market went la, 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 and la. And the market bumped right over it like it was just little mouse turds, and it just kept right on going. Much to do with the policies that have been put in place with our government. I mean, you look at the different fiscal and monetary policies. What do I mean by that? You know, fiscal meaning like what, what we can do with interest rates, how we set interest rate policy, the monetary policy. Fiscal, fiscal for those of you listening at home, is just a fancy way of saying finance right. or financial. right. Right, it's a derivation of financial. So fiscal policy is what can the leaders in Washington do to have any effect on the money world, the money situation, the then economy. What's, what's the difference between the fiscal policy and then the monetary policy? All the stimulus stuff, the tax rates as they they were brought down. I mean, they we yeah, have mon- these the mo- yes, we have these two levers between the different fiscal well, and, and and monetary policy, and they've been making it super duper easy to create this Groundhog Day effect. And those are only the only two levers that they have. And who's in charge of fiscal policy? So fiscal policy is all the government. So all of our friends in the stuff suits in Washington are the ones that change tax rates, right? They can move them up, they can move them down. And that, yeah, and that all used to be done via president working with Congress and getting laws passed and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, since 2008, with this executive order. order, presidents can now go dump a whole bunch of gasoline on the fire like we've talked about. Which we've seen, and I love, I haven't said this yet, but I love the phraseology that you have around investor immortality. And I also have in my head investor invincibility. Yeah. Because we keep giving out, get out of jail free cards. Right, through, through this fiscal policy. Through fiscal policy. Monetary policy is, and you'll hear this talked a lot about in, in the media, the monetary policy is the Federal Reserve Bank. And what they do is they have influence over interest rates. Which affects money. Which affects money. Hence the name monetary policy. So that's the fancy way of saying money policy. They can move rates up, they can move rates down. As we've seen since 08, they brought rates way down. If you were to look up the history of interest rates in the United States, they brought them to darn near zero after 08. They kept them kept them there for a while. They trickled them up. And then as soon as COVID happened, bam, we took them right to zero. Yep. And then yeah, the cre- guy in charge. Yeah, a sense of, of invincibility. Invincibility. Yeah. The guy in charge, in this case, of the Federal Reserve, Chairman Powell, came out at that time and said, and we're going to keep interest rates at zero until 2023. Ooh, that made me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because it's like you're playing a game of poker and you're just going to play with an open hand and you're just going to put your cards on the table and leave them there the entire time you're playing poker, which at this point was going to be three years. Yeah. So you're going to play three years with the largest economy in the world with your your poker hand on the table. Strategically, nobody asked me, but I didn't think that made a lot of sense. I'll ask you. Did that make a lot of sense? No, Your Honor. It didn't. (laughs) So to your point on the investor invincibility, the investor immortality, we had a very swift correction with COVID in three weeks, right? It went down a ton. And then it was like a rocket ship from SpaceX going to Mars on the other side of it. That was the fastest I'd ever seen that happen. With the whole PPE program for, you know, businesses that were just given money for the sake of keeping their doors open. And, And I both admire and respect the swiftness with how the government made some of these decisions against the greatest pandemic we've ever seen. Sure. We have overstimulated the economy, much like, you know, when I come into the studio and I've had too much caffeine. Absolutely. We get jittery. Yeah. And the consequence of that jittery is inflation. Yep. It's here. And that's kind of what I think we want to talk a little bit more about today is the fact that this investor invincibility, this investor immortality, it is over. The easy money policy, it is over. 
But I want to stay at the beach, Daddy. I'm having fun. I know, but it's time to pay for our vacation now and go home and go back to work. Oh, no. Because that's life. I don't want to. The reason we're having this conversation today is because there's a hidden threat. There's a big threat out there because of the fact that risk is back that is not being talked about. And we need to talk about that today. When we look at all of this risk that exists and the, the litany of risks you and I went through in the last episode, to me, to connect the dots to our community, the greatest hidden threat to all of our friends in financial sobriety land who are all working together to try to save for this thing called retirement one day, the greatest threat with all of these different risks applies to how we're investing in our 401ks and our retirement savings accounts. What do you mean? I'm comfortably tucked away in a Target Series fund. Right, because risk doesn't happen to you, right? It happens over here somewhere else. It's not in my backyard. No, it's not. Right. I'm fine. Right. Are you saying I'm not fine? I'm suggesting maybe you're not as fine as you think. So what's the risk? I believe the biggest risk facing all retirement savers today is hidden inside of these things called target date funds, Okay. otherwise known as target series funds. You know my favorite marketing name for these? What's that? Lifestyle funds. <laughs> That's a good one. I was kind of channeling I don't know if I my heard that one. Oh, I've, I've, lifestyle funds. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm channeling my George Carlin on that one. Really? Lifestyle funds. Where the heck they come up with that name? Well, you want to have a nice lifestyle. Wow. In retirement. Wow. So you, I mean, you, I mean, obviously, you know what I'm talking about. I do. You and I both share a common passion here for how these things have been marketed, built, managed, and delivered to the vast majority of retirement savers. $1.8 trillion is invested in these target date funds. Is that a lot? Uh, Sounds like a lot to me. So you remember that business idea we had called 401k Masters? Oh, how could I ever forget? I still have the golf shirt. So do I. I wear and, and it's appropriately black. Yeah, mine's white. So I wear it in mourning to our idea that was a brilliant idea. Yeah. Because what is my the singular greatest challenge that I have seen in all my years of working with for where we have 401k plans and we go in and do in, in, you know investor education sessions. And this goes back to the the summer series that we had last year and we will have again this year on, you know, not just educating our children on money, but our own understanding and education on money, is here we are responsible for saving for our own retirement. Right. Wealth is on our shoulders. Nobody's going to do it for the us. The accumulation of wealth, I don't have, is there, if there's wealth on my shoulders, can, can I get it off? You got some wealth on your shoulders, but okay. you put it there. Nobody else put it there for you. The education that needs to happen in order for people to take the responsibility to save for their own retirement is what we're going to get into today. Because whenever these target style or lifestyle funds were created, I have always described them as that all-purpose vitamin your doctor has prescribed to you so that you have the convenience of taking, you know. One pill. One pill. And it checks all the boxes. And it does it all. Right, right. Because I don't want to get messy and try to understand the different investment choices that I have available to me because it's not my expertise. Right. So I, I work for a company and I have been told that I need to save a lot of money in this 401k bucket, or if you work at a nonprofit or a hospital or a municipality, it's called a 403b or a 457. These are just IRS codes that tie to- Yeah, the alphabet soup or the number soup of- That let you save this money. Yeah. Here you are going into a restaurant where the menu is in a foreign language, and you have to order from the menu, and it's very specific to the company that you work for, the, the powers that be have chosen a lineup of funds, but the problem is it's in a menu that you can't understand until you get to the bottom. So wait, and are you telling the, me I'm, I'm at a cheesecake factory in Beijing right now? Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. The biggest menu in the world in a language I don't understand? How's that feel, first of all? <laughs> a little overwhelming. Okay. But you get to the bottom, and there's a little section that's in English. Oh. And it says, Target Series 2025, Target Series 2030, Target Series 2035. Or Lifestyle Fund 2030, Lifestyle Fund 2035. And these very simplistically are an all-purpose vitamin of investments behind the Wizard of Oz screen designed and targeted towards an intended retirement date of 2025. 
So let's say you and I were planning to retire in 2025. Hallelujah. And the appropriate, you, you are, uh, you're counseled or you've read somewhere on the megalomedia internet thing that that would be an appropriate allocation for you. Mm -hmm. A target series fund, you can't see behind the Wizard of Oz screen, but you can certainly dig and pick your favorite mutual fund company and their, their target series 2025 fund. And you can go do homework on what the asset allocation is. What that means in English is what's it invested in, what combination of stocks, bonds, and cash it's invested in. Right. Right? So here you are in one of these lovely all-purpose vitamin 2025 funds. And let, let's say you're 60 and your life savings is in this thing. Yeah, you got a lot of equity in the house, but you're not going to live on the house. You're going to live in the house. Right. It, it's the retirement savings that's going to create and the income been, and replace the paycheck. you've been told for decades that this is where you need to save your money. Absolutely. And you are doing the responsible thing by putting it in a target series fund that is going to, without you having to do anything, because we wouldn't want to get our hands dirty. Yeah, they told me there's a glide path. Oh, I love that yeah. phrase. They, they say there's a glide path. Almost what is like, that? Well, I envision, hang gliding? Well, you I, know, I'd hang glide more if I was immortal. There you go. I, I envision Miles, uh, you know, up in his Cessna right now, kind of gliding in to the runway and, he, you know, just watching him do that and how smooth he can grease the runway, that's the feeling I get when I hear them talk about this glide path where it just it's gently takes me from a aggressive, risk-filled equity portfolio to a nice, comfortable, gradual shift into the safety of bonds as we touch down on the retirement runway. Because, as they used to say in Monsters, Inc., that is where the risk shifts, right? We risk right. from we we move from the risk of stocks, and what's the risk of stocks is they go down, and they go down at a at a bad time in my life, right? To we're gonna go play in the bond market where it's safer, and it's pleasant because those are conservative investments. And my snotty little attitude about this is that that is not the case, right? That's not in practicality because you and I have been around this industry long enough to know what kind of risk can actually happen when you're exposed to the bond market. I was a 26-year-old snot-nosed broker at Merrill Lynch in Oakland, California, 1111 Broadway, downtown Oakland. And we had an old codger in the office who had been at it for like 45 years. You and I both had one of those in our offices. I had one at A.G. Edwards those are in always, Darien, Connecticut, oh, 1995. God. Those are always the people I wanted to spend my time with, but yeah. they wouldn't give me any time because, I mean, they had shoes older than me. Yeah, old, well, he had a bond calculator on his desk older than you probably. And I, I got him for a few minutes one day, and I said, John, can I ask you a question? He's like, sure, son, what? What's the one piece of advice you can give me? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know my left from my right at how long I've been doing this. And he didn't have to think very long, but it was like right out of one of those commercials where he sat back in his chair and he took the glasses off and he asked me to sit down and he said, here's the deal. When you work with clients, number, number one, it's okay to lose the money in stocks. They, they expect that and you won't get fired, but you're going to get fired every time you lose somebody money in bonds. Mm. Well, why is that, John? Because people don't understand bonds. So they, meaning it they would think behoove, they're safe. It would behoove you to not just learn, but to understand how the bond market works. Because the perception is bonds are safe. So when you lose money in bonds, they're gone. They're moving on. Yeah. And this is not part of my conversation with John. This is just basic fundamental economics 101. Interest rates go up. Bond prices go down. So now let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, this this is what's scaring the ever-loving you-know-what out of me is the fact that 98% of all retirement plans, all group retirement plans on planet Earth have these target series funds. 80% of all retirement savers inside of a group plan own a target date fund. And these are not my statistics. This this was actually something I read in a CNBC article dated March 6th, 2022. The title of the article was Target Date Funds Work Up to a Point. Here's where you may want to reconsider. Go find that article. Breaking news. Yeah. That's now. 
right now. They work up until now. So let's go back to this. So so I want to get into this, like, why do bonds do that? Yes, this why, is, why do this prices is go officially our public service announcement. Yeah, I, I want to talk about why prices, how prices on bonds and interest rates all all work together. I think that's important. That whole glide path thing they talk about, I mean, the the marketing of these target series funds is brilliant. Brilliant. We're going to slowly, gradually take you from a more aggressive position to a more conservative position right as you're going into retirement. And what you just said about how bond prices will go down if interest rates go up, why? I mean, that first of all, the risk that that exposes to people who own the lifestyle slash target series slash target date funds for 2025, 2026, probably for the next 10 or 12 years, to me sounds like there is a ticking time bomb potentially for those people as we're seeing what the Fed is currently doing with interest rates. Yeah, I mean, the the concept of a glide path or a soft landing is always wonderful, right? It's like you're on a flight somewhere and... Those pilots that make kind of that, like, oh, did we just land? Yeah, they they, they call oh. that greasing the, the oh, landing. Those that... are just delightful. And then the other ones where you feel like you got shot out of the sky <laughs> and right. it was a it was a successful crash landing. Right. And three of my vertebrae are now fused together from hitting and the... my forehead hit the the, yeah. the tray. So why does it happen? If you bought a bond five years ago. Yeah, yeah. And you bought the bond at a certain price, and it, and they agree when you buy it that it's going to pay you a certain amount of interest. So let's say, make it very, very simple. Let's say you bought a bond five years ago, and it was going to pay you 2% today. What I pay for that bond? Like $1,000. $1,000. So I paid $1,000 for a bond that's going to pay me 2%. Guaranteed. And I'm going to get my money back in how long? Doesn't matter. Five, 10 years. Okay. Actually, what matters is how it does matter. Please forgive me. It absolutely does matter whether it's 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years because that's going to affect the price, right? The, the longer you own the bond, the more sensitive it's going to be to changes in interest rates. Yes, thank okay. you. Okay. So I own a 2% bond that I paid $1,000 for. I'm going to get my money back in 10 years. Perfect. Okay. Let's start there. Okay. Now the Fed chairman has come out and said, going back to our poker analogy, it's a, new, it's a new hand he's been dealt, but he's put the same cards down on the table and said multiple times that they are going to raise interest rates. Their intention to raise interest rates is going to be 7 to 11 times over the next year and a half. Mm. Okay? So let's just say he, he raises them eight times, and he moves them a quarter of a percent each time. So a total of 2%. Okay. Over whatever span. doesn't matter, right? Which means... That the same bond that you bought five years ago. My 2% bond. Your 2% bond, I can buy it at 4%. So if you go now buy the same bond that you'll get your money back in 10 years for $1,000, you can buy a bond that'll pay you 4% now. I can when wow. when the Fed chairman does what he says he's going to do, that's, which is raise interest rates. That's probably going to make, so if I so now I own this 2% bond and I want to get rid of it. I'm, because you want my bond. Right. So I would imagine... If you can buy a 4% bond, why would you want to buy my 2% bond? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I imagine that is the, the price of my bond is going to go down. Now, in in this lovely little example, you actually own the individual bond. Yeah, but I don't want to own it anymore cuz it's only 2%. Right. So for in order for you to sell it, you're going to you're going to take a loss. Well, that sucks. It does. But you could hold it till maturity. But I don't want to. I know. But you are almost going to be forced to hold it till maturity where you can get your money back. Well, that sucks even more. How are we doing so far? <laughs> I don't want to own bonds when interest rates are going up, are let you, alone have are, my entire retirement savings in this stuff. Are you are you gliding now? <laughs> Sound, feels more like we were about to hit the runway on a nice smooth path and a butt ton of wind shear just came up and totally jacked us off course because I don't want to own that 2% bond for the next 10 years. Correct. Here's the bigger problem. And I don't understand why more people aren't talking about this. So if you're a financial advisor listening to this conversation today, we are going to implore you to talk to your clients about this because there is a tremendous amount of risk on the table because inside, so the the point I'm making on you could at least hold your bond in our example to maturity like a CD because when the bond matures, you get your principal back. I know you don't want to. 
because you want my bond. Sure. But you can at least hold it till maturity in the example. In the lifestyle funds, in the target series funds, you own them inside something called a mutual fund. Right. That's, I was going to ask you, it, it doesn't seem like most people I know own individual bonds with maturity dates inside of their 401k plan, let alone inside these lifestyle slash target date funds. They own them inside of a mutual fund. So it's where a big mutual fund company is packaging a bunch of these bonds and then selling a sliver of that pooled mutual fund to you, which now no longer do I have a maturity date no. on my bonds. You don't. So what happens to those when interest rates go up? Well, do you think it's good or bad? <laughs> I'm kind of playing a little dumb because I kind of know the answer here and I'm enjoying this conversation because the fact of the matter is I don't want to be within a thousand miles of bond funds when interest rates are going up. And if you think there's a lot of money in the stock, in the stock market, in stock mutual funds, go look how much money is in bond funds. Whew. Is it a little more? It makes the stock market look like a little section of the beach. Yeah, isn't the bond market something like 10 times the size of the stock market? We some would, ridiculous number like that? We would, we like would that? have to fact check, fact check it. Yeah, uh, but I know it's some huge differential it is a, like It that. is a very significant differential in terms of the size of the bond market. So back to our analogy of the, ter of the person in the 2025 fund who's on this glide path. They're getting very excited about their, their retirement. They can see the runway. They're going to glide to the runway. But if the Fed does what it says it's going to do, and it's going to raise rates as many times as they have announced, that is not going to be a very pretty picture for an investor that has now the majority of their assets. 70, 80, 90 percent. 70, 80, 90% inside of a target series fund that only has a few years left before it hits its target are going to be in bonds, are going to be, the other word for it is fixed income. That is going to be a problem. Completely tangential to this is the fact that we haven't had a situation like this since 1994. Yeah. We have not had an environment, which is really the, the challenging part of that is that really only the super senior investors that have been around for 30 or 40 years of doing this are going to have any memory, any investor recall on what that was like. And chances are, if they've been around 30 or 40 years, they probably don't have a lot of memory of that because, you know, I don't know about you, but my memory's not as good as it once was. I mean, I, I remember how 1994 felt, but I was 22 years old and it was my first year in our industry. I didn't have any clients that could get hurt by the bond market, but there were lots of people in my A.G. Edwards office who did. So your bond guy that you had at Merrill Lynch, I had a bond guy like John, but his name was Tony. And I remember him telling me stories of what was happening now and the conversations he was having with his clients about, you know, their triple A rated municipal bonds. Slow down. Slow down. Triple A rated municipal bonds. Highest possible credit rating. So the quality of all qualities. The quality of all qualities. Like better than Pima cotton. Better than Pima cotton. Okay. Like whatever that soup Pima cotton. Like that good. Gesundheit. You're welcome. With municipal bonds, meaning bond issuers, municipalities that generally have tax revenue coming in to pay the interest on these bonds. Like the, these that are the, sounds nice. These are the best kinds of bonds you can buy. Because they're safer. They're safer. Right. And yet those bonds were down 20 to 30% in 1994. What do you mean? The, 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 if you bought so a $1,000 bond that we were talking about with a 2% return. After six rate increases by the Fed in 1994, yeah. those average AAA rated municipal bonds were down anywhere from, on $1,000, 200 to $300 per bond, depending on the maturity, depending on how long you were going to hold the bond. So the longer it was until it matured, the more volatile it was in terms of the price. Yes. And boy, was that painful. I mean, he, he was reminiscing on stories of the 70s 
on when he started in the business. Because before 1994, the last time we saw major interest rate issues in the bond market was in the mid-70s. And and Tony w- told me a story about the old Tennessee Valley Authority bonds. Sure. Oh, the, yeah. The TVA, TVA bonds, bonds. That he used to sell to clients. Yeah, that go look up a, a chart on any of those, ladies and gentlemen. By 1981, a, an early 70s, again, AA-plus rated Tennessee Valley Authority bond. So Pima Cotton. Uh-huh. Supima Cotton. Uh, yeah, Pima Cotton. Not quite Supima cotton, but Thanks. pretty damn soft, 50 cents on the dollar. They lost half their value during the late 70s, during the hyperinflation and interest rate boom Doesn't of the late 70s. Doesn't sound like a glide path to me. <laughs> Sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> what would happen if a bunch of those kinds of bonds are inside of the bond funds? They're not my mutual fund. Mm, maybe not the municipal bonds because... You wouldn't put tax-free bonds inside of a tax-deferred investment vehicle. That's a whole separate show. But there are some corporate bonds out there, some some taxable bonds that are highly rated like Supima Cotton that could be inside those bond funds, feeling the weight of rising interest rates. What a happy show. (laughs) I'm happy because we're getting out in front of this. I know, I, and my sarcasm is immediately met with... I'm happy we're talking is, about this. This is Investor Education 101, because it, it honestly, it so feels like nobody's talking about this. No. It's how- like the 800-pound elephant in the room where people aren't talking about this. And I am, I am so sick and tired of investors not having an advocate, not having somebody that... It's, it's not their fault that they don't know this stuff. The concept of saving for retirement has been forced upon them. I mean, let's face it. Who wouldn't want a pension? I want a pension. Sure. Everybody wants a pension. And the, those clients that we have that have pensions, just they do cartwheels around our office because they have something they that have everybody else wants. Right. They have a pension. Yes, exactly. But in this case, because retirement is on our shoulders and there's no safety net, there's no safety net. No. So it's... It's the exact opposite of investor immortality because you're doing the higher wire act and you don't know what you're doing Yeah. with no safety net. Yeah. So what do we do about this? What can a listener who's sitting here at the table with us today, and now that we've got them somewhat concerned about what's inside of their 401k, because I'm guessing a few people are listening to this going, gosh, I... I have all my money in one of those things. What, what do I do? This is more conceptual. Yeah. And we're going to get into the tactical, but the more conceptual is you have to start to acknowledge that there are different ways to do this. There are different ways to go about protecting yourself and managing risk and being open, first and foremost, being open-minded to concepts that are different than what you've always been taught. Well, let's face it. What we've always been taught was the stuff that Harry Markowitz was writing about back in the 1950s. Sure. And are you driving? Did you drive in a 1957 Oldsmobile when you came to the office today? Or has the technology in your automobile gotten a little different? Just a a snitch better. Yeah. 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 But yet we are, for the most part, the philosophy behind the way most people manage their money. Right. This buy, hold, and hope is the technology of a 1957 Oldsmobile. Absolutely. And that's the genesis, really, of where all these target series funds have come from, is this concept of modern portfolio theory, this buy and hold concept where you diversify your money across all these different categories. But now we're going to allow the mutual fund provider to slowly modify that and adjust that allocation to reflect a more conservative allocation going forward. And that's technology that was invented in the 1950s. And that's still what the majority of financial advisors and people like us subscribe to. 400,000 people in this world who do what you and I do, I should say here in the United States, and the majority still subscribe to 70-year-old technology. Because it's easy. It is. It's very easy. And it's also in alignment with the fee model in our industry. If you stay fully invested then all of the people who provide those investments continue to get paid. Correct. If you don't stay fully invested, their mechanism is not built for them to create revenue. So there's a a lack of alignment, I believe, from an industry standard 
of what's best for individual investors and what's best for the investment community, the investment industry. And that's why there's all this pushback from a legislative standpoint. Talk about uh, fiscal and monetary policy. We've got a government that's trying to make standard the fiduciary standard, where it is the responsibility of financial professionals to act purely in the best interest of their clients, avoiding all conflict of interest before they put their own interest ahead of them. And our industry doesn't like that. This is why. Well, and the other thing our industry doesn't like, this is a little bit in the weeds, but when you start to go make changes to the investments within your 401k plan, oh, one of the unknown I know where you're going with landmines yeah. you have to be aware of are the limitations that the fund company, the mutual fund company that is hosting and managing your 401k put on your ability to go in or go out of a fund. To be able to go from fully invested to somewhere safer like cash. And a, or a money market. 30, 60, or 90-day limitation on your ability to make those moves. Wow. You, you really, you really want to get my blood pressure to 200 over 120 is talk to me about that because that's just flat out wrong. Well, but, it eats into the their profitability. Right. The lobbyists in our, in, in our industry don't want people moving around that much. It reminds me of that story I love to tell when Jack was six. And Jack is our son who's no longer six. And he could not sit at the dinner table for dinner because he was a six-year-old little boy. Right. And he'd bounce around the kitchen, and we would always be like, Jack, sit down. Sit still. Sit still and have your dinner. And he couldn't do it. And the analogy was always the same to me relative to the investor, which is they want you to sit still, do nothing, be there, and eat your dinner. Gosh, I hope that works out for you. So. Solution. Let's, solution. Let's get to the happy story. What do you see in our bag of tricks as the solution for the investor? Not, I mean, num number one, most obviously, to well, me, is... You, you got to go work with an advisor. You, you need you advice. You need help with this. Yeah. I mean, this, if you don't do this for a living, I mean, you, you and I have each invested north of a quarter century of our lives in knowing this stuff inside and out, where it's second nature. I mean, how many times do we catch each other in studio talking, you know, industry jargon and lingo because it's just second language Well, it's us. our parlez-vous français. Exactly. Yeah. But yet- if this is not your full-time job, go get one. Go get some. Yeah, go get some help with this. I mean, I I don't I don't tinker with my car when something goes wrong. My car didn't turn on the other day. I'm not getting under the hood trying to figure that out. I'm taking it to my friend Wayne, the mechanic, who knows my car inside and out. But you, I mean, there's YouTube. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you hop on YouTube? Uh, because I'm not very interested in it. It's, right. It's not something I want to get good at. In in this case, it's your life savings. Well, and, and how many people have we talked to that really don't have an interest in this stuff? They Most. don't want to become Most. experts at this. Right. And then there's a, number, there's a number of people that have been lulled into submission on the fact that there is no risk really to deal with. And this thing will always I don't write, need help. write itself. Right. And it's going to return back to the, to the glory days. And I don't need the help. What did COVID teach us? Right, three weeks of pain, and this thing snapped back immediately. Right, it was an owie, and I, I put a little ointment on it, and I was fine. Right, I don't think that's the case today. I do not either. Inflation and interest rate risk, and how that translates to both risk in the stock market as well as risk in the bond market is real. Okay, and you need to go get help. So but, go get some help. But here's where I'm going to call our industry out. Most of our industry still subscribes to this idea of buy, hold, and hope. So when you go look for help. You've got to find somebody that's willing to be different. You've got to find the advisors that are willing to challenge the status quo, challenge the conventional thinking of what the main message has been from Wall Street for 70 years. Amen. A, a message that is aligned with their profitability, not your personal profitability. Amen. And they're out there. I mean, in, in all- It might take a while. But it's worth it. You have to do your homework and interview those advisors. Because let me tell you, in our private wealth management practice, we brought our clients to cash earlier this year because we have certain metrics that we follow. That Mostly are, to cash. Mo well, almost all the cash with the exception of a, of a couple of, of holdings. Of a slice. Yeah. But again, we have clients that, that pay us a, a handsome fee to make those decisions for themselves. And there are other people like us out there 
that do that. Go find people in your local community, interview three or four different advisors. It's worth or the how, time. Or I hate to say it, however many it takes. However, yeah, there you go. Don't find don't, don't attach yourself to how many to to find somebody that is willing to to challenge the conventional thinking in our industry. Yes. And you have to ask those hard questions. And you're gonna here's here's one of the subtleties of this, brother, is you're going to meet a lot of really nice people. You're most going people to meet in our most nice of the people. people in our industry are good, hardworking, honest people. That does not mean they are willing or comfortable to challenge the status quo in the way you and I have. Because what you and I do is not easy. The easy path, the glide path for our careers would have been to stay with buy, hold, and hope and just, you know, hang in there, be patient. Ride the waves up and down. Yeah, just read Hope the script it all works we've, out okay. we've memorized. We've, right. we've, been, we've been trained that script. So it's very unsettling to me because you're going to meet a lot of nice people, but they're just going to – they're going to – Inept. I'm sorry. They're, they're not going to challenge anything what we're talking about here. No. They're, they're going to they're be okay with the Target Series Fund. They're going to be okay with – Just hang in there. It'll hang be in okay. there. Be patient. Yeah. You'll ride the bond wave up and down. I know it's not going to be comfortable, and there's the barfy bag in the front seat, but you're going to be okay. Yeah. Now – it's going to take you some time to find that person, and that's okay. If for some reason you can't find that person or you're struggling to find that help, at a minimum, you've got to take our money barrels exercise and use it. We talked about our money barrels exercise in many, many of our episodes. It many, was part, barrel, many barrels ago. Many barrels ago. It, yeah. it, it, I mean, it's part of the whole financial sobriety curriculum as, as we're helping people get their financial house in order and understand – the timeline that your money's on. What what I mean by that is is if you look at your four hundred one k, depending on where you are, I'm sixty. Yeah. When when am I going to need some or all of that four hundred one k? I'm never going to need all of it today, right? But I might need some of it today. I might or need soon some of it soon. I might need some of it later. If you send us an email, send me an email, Matthew at yourfinancialsobriety.com, and I will send you a copy of our Money Barrels Worksheet. What was your email? Matthew at yourfinancialsobriety.com. Okay. Your email is jim at yourfinancialsobriety.com. It is? It is. If you send us an email, either one of us will send you this PDF copy of our Money Barrels concept, which will visually allow you to figure out how much of my 401k do I actually need here soon, or is it something that I may not need for some time down the road? Now, if you have to stay with this buy, hold, and hope strategy, I hope at least it's for the portion of your retirement savings you don't need for a very, very long time. That, in the context of our barrel strategy, is later money. Later money or potentially never money. So conceptually, could we say 10 years plus to try to draw some demarcation? Yeah. I mean, the, the only challenge I have with that idea of 10 years plus is that you and I both went through a market from 2000 to 2010, where the S&P 500 averaged a 0% rate of return. Yeah, that we, we lived through that too. So again, if we have to sit with a buy and hold strategy because we haven't identified the advisor yet that can offer us something a little bit different, at least at a minimum, use this Money Barrels worksheet to figure out what could at least get out there 10 years that I've got a shot at if this inflation thing and all what we're seeing today rising in interest rates really messes with my 401k, I've at least got time for that to recover. Granted, I will have lost any ground, right? I will have lost the, the ground of trying to earn some money on that money. And I'm not only recouping losses, but I'm also trying to recoup lost ground over that time. So just trying to get back to even 10 years from now I guess that's better than nothing. Sure. Right? Yeah. But then anything that you might need soon or today, gosh. We would recommend- Going to cash. That that part of the portfolio would be in cash, whether that's in your 401k or out, right? If you have the ability to save outside of your 401k, your soon money, a lot of other people in our industry would say is your emergency money. Right. Right? That's the crisis money. Yeah. That needs to be- in in our world, if you are if you if your glide path is very very soon for retirement, you should have one, two, 
in conservative cases with really conservative clients, three years worth of living expenses in cash. Absolutely. And that could be inside your 401k. Yeah. And, and tactically now, what we are recommending is that you're going to move out of some of your investments into either the money market option or in certain 401k plans, it might be called a stable value option. Yeah. Or a stable principal option. Right. It's going to be essentially the cash equivalent in whatever phraseology is inside your 401k plan. Look, everybody's situation is different. And, and the last thing that you and I, I think, ever want to do is provide investment advice to the masses. Correct. Because everybody is well, we unique. can't. Right. And, and we can't do that. These are just suggestions based on our experience working with our clients and our own personal finances that most of the things we invest our money in can fluctuate too much in value on any given day for money that we need soon, soon for it to be a prudent decision to to invest your money in that kind of stuff. And, and right now, given what's happening in the world, as much as the industry standard is bonds are safer than stocks, our experience tells us they're not. And if retirement's around the corner or there's a simple need for a certain amount of money over these next couple of years. Let's use my kids' education funds. Holy cow, do we need to think safely about that. Right? I mean, yeah. my kids' education funds are in money market right now. Oh, good for you. Because you're using they need the money it, soon. We need it soon. Yeah. Some of it is we need now, and yeah. some of it is we need soon. And we can't take the risk of either stocks or bonds going sideways when their timeline is not going to change. That's the other thing I really want to remind people of is that the timeline that you're on relative to your own retirement, you can't redo your 50s, can't redo your 60s or your 70s. That timeline is why some of what we're talking about here is so important. If your Uncle Warren with $100 billion, you can buy and hold all day long because you've, you've got enough. And I bet even if we looked at Uncle Warren, he probably has plenty of cash. Yeah, he might be sitting on a dollar or two. So that... That's where you and I have always kind of poked fun at the buy and hold and hope person who, like Uncle Warren, talks about, you know, just hang in there, be patient, all that good stuff. A thousand points of light. Yeah. Right. If I had $100 billion, I could do that too. But I, I don't get to repeat my 50s. Well, let's face it. When Harry Markowitz and friends created modern portfolio theory in the 1950s, who were the largest investors in the time? What, 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 what was the makeup of people investing in the 1950s? The wealthy. The wealthy and large institutions. Yes. People who did not live by specific timelines with their money. Endowments, institutional big pools of money, and wealthy people. Pension plans. Pension plans. They don't have specific timelines, per se, of when all the money is required to replace... The paycheck. The paycheck, the revenue stream, whatever it is. But now you've got the majority of Americans nearly 80% of 401k participants that are invested in these lifestyle funds, these target series funds, following the same rules that were written 70 years ago that apply to the largest foundations and institutional pension pools. And it just, to me, does not make sense. And it's a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. And with that, Your Honor, Hang that on. my case. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to wrap us up here. No, no. I, I wanted to tease okay. you with that. But, <laughs> oh. And I rest my case. Okay. We rest our case. I, th I think we've definitely beaten this market risk, inflation risk, interest rate risk pretty hard as far as how that affects us with retirement savings. What I want to do in our next episode or potentially next episode or two is talk about some of the experience we had back in 08 where people did see their 401k plans drop 40, 50% in value. Do you think that affected marriages, relationships? Do you think that created relationship risk for people when all of a sudden it's 2006, it's 2007, we're looking at retirement, we're excited, we can't wait, and then bang, our retirement savings is cut in half? Did that affect people's relationships with other people? Did it affect their relationship with themselves? I wonder if it also affected their relationship with money. Well, thank goodness we have something to talk about next. Well, with that, my friend, I'm going to call it. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. 
and check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety, I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Mutual funds are sold by prospectus. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing in mutual funds. The prospectus, which contains this and other information about the investment company, can be obtained directly from the fund company or your financial professional. Be sure to read the prospectus carefully before deciding whether to invest.